0: Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times, you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. (laughs) Illinois saw its first case of the novel coronavirus one year ago this week. Since then, nearly 19,000 residents of the state have lost their lives, and the virus continues to spread.
1: Look around the nation, outside of Illinois, and you'll see the pandemic at its worst in many places. The risk of a resurgence in Illinois, particularly with extremely contagious new variants, is serious.
0: Now all eyes are on the vaccine effort. In one of his first moves in office, President Biden has pledged to get out 100 million doses in his first 100 days.
2: I'm signing an executive action to use the Defense Production Act and all other available authorities to direct all federal agencies and private industry to accelerate the making of everything that needs to protect, test, vaccinate and take care of our people.
0: And today, Illinois officially started phase 1B of the vaccine effort teachers frontline essential workers and anyone older than 65 are eligible for the vaccine so things seem to be rolling but how do we make sure the rollout is fair and equitable all this week on reset we're examining who has access to the vaccine in our area how it's being distributed and how we can ensure that the most vulnerable among us are prioritized it's the latest in our series closing the gap where we explore disparities in the Chicago region and talk to people working to address them. Now, in just a bit, we'll hear from a medical ethicist and critical care physician who's been working on this issue. But first, let's turn to Audra Wilson, president and CEO of the Shriver Center on Poverty Law. The center has a list of recommendations for the Illinois Department of Public Health and for the Biden administration.
1: Audra, hello. Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Also with us is Alice Goldfarb. She's the lead on The Atlantic's COVID Racial Data Tracker which collects and publishes COVID-19 data to understand the pandemic in the U.S. Alice, welcome.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: I want to first say that this is, of course, an ever-evolving situation. We learn new data and and knowledge about this virus every single day. So we are bringing you the latest that we know at this juncture. Now, Audra, I'll start with you because we know that Latinx people are contracting the virus at higher rates than any other demographic Black people are dying from it more than any other demographic. Why is it important that equity be factored, if not centered, in these next steps?
1: You've just said it. I mean, the fact of the matter is that the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed the magnitude of health inequities in the United States. It's highlighted structural racism, our institutions, practices, and policies. And the mortality rate is more than twice as high in black, Latinx and indigenous populations than in white populations. And a lot of data reveals that there's a very strong socioeconomic component. So people who are lower on the socioeconomic spectrum are also more likely to be affected. And so that's the reason why, as we're thinking about these vaccines being administered, it's essential that we assure equitable access for those who need it the most.
0: Alice, can you pick up where Audra left off? Absolutely. I think that
3: what Otter says about how this pandemic has exposed the structural factors is really important. And one of the things we are seeing is that the data doesn't entirely exist to understand the extent of that. Right. Everything that we are seeing in the data shows just how much disparity there is in the ways that people are being affected by COVID-19, but without... More complete data, more consistent data, federal guidelines about what should be made public. We don't fully understand who is being affected and how and where.
0: Yeah, this conversation is so timely. It's a critical time to be talking about this because the rollout is literally happening now. Audra, take a step backwards with me here. The disparities in COVID-19 outcomes mirror existing disparities in health care and access to quality for care for communities of color. Can you talk about that?
1: Absolutely. So there has been always historically a, a challenge with being able to get quality health care to communities of color. And while the Affordable Care Act was so monumental as it allowed many communities that had been previously disadvantaged not be able to access quality care to now have quality care, it's still a continuing problem. So whether people have good primary care physicians, whether they're getting full coverage, We are still in a country that relies upon employer-based health insurance, which is why the ACA was so important, because if you happen to work for someplace that did not have employer-based health coverage, what were your options? So health equity, particularly communities of color, has been a longstanding issue so when you combine that with where we are with covid even though there have been some very significant gains that have been made it's just exposing again some of these problems they're surfacing in ways that now we're seeing with when it comes to distribution being able to get to their primary care physicians to have access getting the information that they need to know uh, where do i go for treatment so that's why there's this kind of cumulative problem that we have with healthcare access and now seeing it in light of covid
0: Audra, we also know that Chicago schools staff is now part of Phase 1B, and that begins today. And you have a list of who you think needs to be considered first. Can you share that with us? I think that the Phase
1: 1B right now that we have in Illinois actually is a really good list. They are essential frontline workers. You're talking about the people who are the most exposed on a daily basis, and they do not have the option to work from home. These also include from grocery store clerks to folks who are working in warehouses, manufacturing and food processing plants, where there have been many outbreaks happening because they cannot socially distance, and they have limited access to the type of PPE needed to keep them safe. There is one category that I noticed that is not on there, and it's also about domestic workers, You're talking about caregivers, so people who are maybe non-licensed, but they are people who are bathing, feeding, shopping, and they're helping folks at home. And so that is one uh, kind of glaring absence for me because that's more people who are being exposed. But generally speaking, the people who are on the list of 1B, um, it's very expansive, and they're hitting those individuals who are the most likely to be exposed to the virus.
0: And your list highlights essential workers. Now, we got a lot of messages here at Reset from those of you who are working in the community.
3: My name is Tom, and I'm calling from Belmont Heights. This is Rachel from Rogers Park. I'm a route
1: driver for a company that services vending machines.
3: I am an essential worker, and so is my partner.
1: On any given week, I have to go into five or six different nursing homes to fill the vending machines in their businesses.
3: I am worried about the vaccine rollout being equitable because some of our friends, they're both working from home, and they actually, someone that they know, sent them like an invite code to log on to the Government of Health website. And this invite code actually worked to get vaccinated. And I'm
1: wondering if that makes me eligible as a healthcare worker for the vaccine, and if not, where it puts me in my terms of eligibility. Is
0: that's kind of the point, Audra, that there are people on the front lines still waiting for the vaccine.
1: Absolutely. I mean, because you have two problems here. You have individuals who are now appearing on this one B list that are eligible. But you also have, as you had reported earlier, a minimal amount of vaccines that are being made available per day for people to access. So even among the people who are who are now in this phase 1B, how do you apportion vaccines to those individuals when there's still a limited amount that's available? That's why we're obviously very dependent upon President Biden and using the Defense Production Act to wrap up the number of vaccines that are available. Right. But there is this secondary problem of even if you are on this list, how do you still get access to this and and in what period of time?
0: Alice, your tracking project started back in April and it focuses on how the virus is impacting different populations. Your work was basically to fill in the gaps from what is a lack of comprehensive data from the federal government. Is that accurate? It
3: is. And the project overall started in March with the state-level data about tests and cases and hospitalizations and deaths. And the part that I work on looks at the race and ethnicity data that states and territories are reporting to better understand what's going on in Illinois for some populations compared to the state overall. And, you know, a year into this, we're, we're not getting the federal data to really have a comprehensive sense of what's going on in the country and be able to compare how different states are reacting. And as we Get into the vaccine rollout, we are again really hoping that that we can get more comprehensive data to understand in this case, are these vaccination efforts effective? Who is getting missed in the phases? Who is being impacted well by the choices that the states have made? Yeah, Chicago has language about having a Latinx response. Illinois has language about needing to do the vaccination in an equitable manner and talks about these multi-generational institutional racism, but without the details that sort of point to what they plan to do to implement that or to work on that. Mm -hmm. And because neither the city nor Cook County nor the state are reporting race and ethnicity data about who is being vaccinated we will not be able to see if these efforts are matching the need, are matching the places where people are testing positive and dying at much higher rates.
0: Audra, let's talk more about the nuts and bolts of getting essential workers vaccinated. What support do these groups really need from the government and and their employers too?
1: Well, they do need a lot of support. Um, One big thing is that we need to require employers to provide workers paid time off to obtain the vaccine and paid sick time in order to recuperate from any vaccine side effects. We've heard anecdotally that with that second shot, there have been people who've been having some adverse reactions and that might warrant them needing to have some time off to recuperate. And so this is really important when you're talking about low-wage essential workers and also temporary workers Because temporary workers would not otherwise have this sort of protection. But we're talking about a public health crisis. So in this instance, there need to be accommodations that are made because it's not just about ensuring their safety, but ensuring the safety of all of those in the workplace.
0: How will that be funded? Because I'm thinking some companies are just going to be like, that's not happening here. We don't have the money.
1: Well, that's a good question. Uh, there are going to be, have to, for larger employers, I mean, that's going to have to be an economical decision they make. The fact of the matter is, would you rather have people that are calling off because they are sick? Because that's going to affect their bottom line even more. And it's something to look at, too, with the the administration with some of the new provisions and that have been made, whether or not there might be relief for employers to help them with paid time off and, and paid sick leave. So that is definitely something to be explored. But again, I think the alternative is not a good one and we'll have a much deeper economic crisis if we're talking about people who cannot come to work because they are sick.
0: I imagine messaging around free vaccines will be critical as well.
1: Absolutely. There are a lot of individuals right now, especially for those who may be uninsured, who are wondering, where would I get access to a vaccine? Where can I go? Is it? Do I go to a, my local pharmacy? You know, how might this work? So messaging is going to be very important because there's a lot of confusion, as, as you've been talking about over and over, you know, and for the last few days about the mixed messaging that's coming out there. And individuals, notwithstanding some of their concerns about the vaccine themselves, many are still willing to to be vaccinated, but do not know where to go, do not know how to sign up, do not know what is available, and this is causing a lot of consternation for them
0: incarcerated populations and jail and prison workers are also on your list. Now, we did have a conversation a few weeks back on on Reset on that. It was titled Rethinking Inmates Place in Line for the COVID-19 Vaccine. We'll be sure to share that once again on our Twitter page uh, at WBEZ Reset. Alice, what final recommendations do you have for the needs around data collection to cities and states that are looking to ensure that equity is centered here as we move forward in the rollout?
3: I think making the data available, part of what we don't always know is what information the states and cities have and aren't making public and what information they are not collecting. I think ensuring that this data is collected and then shared publicly, that states and cities keep track of, of who is being vaccinated and wherever possible share sort of several factors at once race and age gender and race because so much of our so many people what the work that they do is is sorted by these other factors and so being a frontline worker often corresponds with with some of these other demographic groups and that they are consistent between what they say about the vaccination and what they say about other COVID data. Right now, we're seeing many places use different categories for the vaccine than they're using for cases and deaths. So it's, it's impossible to be able to trace what happens as a result of vaccination efforts because the populations don't match up, the category groups don't match up.
0: Audra, I'll give you the last word here. Any final thoughts?
1: Obviously, this is, <laughs> you mentioned this right at the beginning of this, that things are changing rapidly. Information and getting out proper information is so critical. There are many folks out there who are working as diligently as possible to make sure that we get the right information to communities. But I do think messaging is going to be important to be able to reach out to these communities and letting them know where they fall in terms of priority. And making sure that we do not lose sight of the fact that these essential workers, including uh, not only our caregivers and our our warehouse workers, but now even talking about teachers. I'm a parent of a 12-year-old, too, and I understand and and sympathize with teachers who are, are scared to go back. But we really, really need to make sure that we are pushing for some continuity when it comes to the distribution of vaccines and clear information for communities so that we can allay some of these concerns and these fears and people can plan accordingly.
0: That's Audra Wilson. She's the president and CEO of the Shriver Center on Poverty Law. And Alice Goldfarb, the lead on the Atlantic's COVID racial data tracker. Thank you both for being with us today.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much for having us.
0: Now, let's bring in another voice to the conversation, Dr. William Parker. He's assistant professor of medicine and faculty physician at the University of Chicago. He's also a medical ethicist specializing in the use of scarce medical resources, and he's been focused on equity. Dr. Parker, hello. Uh,
2: Hello. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. Now, doctor, how much vaccine has been administered so far in Chicago? And should we be proud of where we're at right now, in your opinion?
2: As of this morning, if we just refresh the website, 140,000 total doses administered, 107 of which are first doses. So that's a pretty solid number. You know, the problem is we don't actually know the denominator, meaning how many doses we've received. The mayor tweeted out the supply a couple of weeks ago, but there hasn't been a, a more recent update than that. But it's probably somewhere in the order of close to 250,000. You just sort of extrapolate out, uh, piecing together what they've said publicly which puts us at probably a little bit over 50% of our available supply administered uh, on par with the state.
0: Now you wrote an op-ed in the Chicago Tribune uh, that was inspired by your personal experience at U Chicago, where you weren't allowed to distribute the vaccine to those most in need. Can you explain
2: that? It's been sort of widely acknowledged that early in the vaccine rollout, we had a problem where the eligibility criteria were too narrow. Um, there was sort of excess supply for the number of patients who were eligible and other people were eligible because it was restricted to just healthcare workers and nursing home recipients. And so hospitals worked through their frontline personnel, the people who were in direct patient contact relatively quickly and then had vaccine left over because of unexpectedly high hesitancy rates among healthcare workers in general. Also a lot of, you know, more backline people, you know, who were working from home in our hospital just felt like it wasn't right for them to take the vaccine because they're working from home remotely, even though they're critical to the hospital's operation um, and are essential workers, they're not frontline, even though they fall into that category. So there we had excess vaccine and we wanted to start giving it to patients. And at that time, the city said we couldn't.
0: Wow. You mentioned the mayor, you know, we've been hearing from Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Governor J.B. Pritzker that we don't have enough, right? And but we haven't even distributed all the doses that we have. So in in fact, there's a significant amount of doses that are still sitting in freezers.
2: Yeah. And I think that's a problem. I, you know, I think the the goal should be to use pretty much all of our available supply and it's, you know, it's sort of a wartime mentality, right? Getting as many shots in the arms as quickly as possible, as equitably as possible to focusing on the most vulnerable communities in our city. You know, I think, Right now, the vaccine should be incredibly easy to obtain in the south, south and west side communities that have been hardest hit by the virus. You know, it should be there and readily available, but it's not.
0: So we're officially in phase 1B. How are you handling it now?
2: Well, now we're vaccinating patients who uh, have a south side zip code first. They're the front of the line. So we're trying to focus on uh, our local community of patients. Um, So they've had to have contact with the University of Chicago Health System in the last two years. But that includes any context. So even people who just went through the ER and got a medical record number that way are in that in that catchment. And we've done you know a whole week's worth of probably you know five to eight thousand. We'll see what the numbers are later today. But um, the response has been uh, good so far.
0: And I think it's also important that we mention, especially for for listeners, that while Phase One B is starting, people eligible under Phase One A, like healthcare workers and nursing home residents, they are still ed- eligible. But a lot of them still haven't been vaccinated. What do you make of that, doctor?
2: I think it's a combination of people being, uh, you know what we call hesitant about the vaccine, wanting to see to make sure there aren't other side effects, concerns about the the speed of the development versus some some people eligible under one A just feel like it's not their turn yet. They aren't exposed to patients on a daily basis. You know, their're a healthcare administrator, for example, who are included in Phase one A by the CDC. Uh, and they just don't think it's it's right for them to get the shot. So, so I think it's important that for healthcare workers to continue to have access to the vaccine. But at the same time, we have to distribute, make sure that people, you know, nursing home residents and people over the age of sixty-five, in particular, and frontline essential workers mm-hmm. in the hardest hit communities and across the city have as much access to the vaccine as possible at this point.
0: Well, I thought this was interesting, Doctor. You you actually made. Uh, a map of Chicago inspired by a similar map of D.C., which it shows the area with the highest number of people dying from the virus and the areas which have received the most vaccines. And now those two areas on the map, they're diametrically opposed. Can you talk more about that?
2: Yeah, it's disturbing but not unexpected, I guess. Uh, You know, I think if you know anything about where the racial segregation in the city of Chicago and you look at that map, it looks pretty familiar where, you know, pretty much to date, young white people have been the ones receiving the vaccine in the city. The city hasn't released racial data yet, but um, that I'm pretty sure that's what it would show based on where they live. And the death rate, as you mentioned, is inversely correlated with where the vaccines are going. So in Woodlawn and South Shore, to communities south of Hyde Park, where I work, you know, death rate somewhere uh, around 300 per 100,000 people. That's five times higher than up in Lakeview. So correspondingly, I think it should be five times easier to get a vaccine in Woodlawn than Lakeview. That's what, you know, the sort of effort we're going to need to make um, in terms of proportional allocation of vaccine to mitigate these disparities and save more lives. You know, some people have sort of falsely created a tension between distributing vaccines quickly and saving lives. You know, you could use up all your vaccine really quickly on the north side, but you wouldn't save nearly as many lives, right? That's the goal of the distribution is to get it into the area, into the into the patients that it'll do the most good. You know, the ethics of this is, are quite clear where the vaccine efforts need to be focused. It's just whether or not our leaders sort of have the moral courage to, to do it.
0: And President Biden actually said, you know, when announcing that he was invoking the Defense Production Act, a few days ago, he said that the rollout has been, quote, a dismal failure. So right along the lines of what you're saying to us now, doctor, there's also some debate around the current practice of saving vaccines in order to give two doses to people rather than one dose to as many people as possible. The concern being that this method could be considered unethical. What are your thoughts? Where, where does And where does the science fall in here?
2: We don't really know how long the first dose would last without the second dose, which is the booster. It does appear that the first dose establishes immunity, but, you know, without giving the second dose, it's not clear how long that would last. So I think doing what they did in the randomized controlled trial and giving everyone two doses makes sense. But having an aggressive strategy where you sort of first dose first and then, you know, don't worry about the second dose, ask questions later about the second dose and, and count on supply to increase Um, and for more doses to come down the line makes the most sense because you want to get that first dose in as broad of a population as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, This has actually been kind of a a group in an academic paper in the Annals of Internal Medicines ran the numbers on this, and you you end up preventing a lot more infections if you give 90% of your supply available supply as first doses and count on more doses coming down the road. And with measures like activating the Defense Production Act, I think we can have faith that that will happen. So I really do feel like state and local governments should sort of yeah. not hold back doses back in reserve and get as broad a population first dose vaccine as possible and, you know, count on more uh, supply to arrive in time for the second dose. That's
0: Dr. William Parker, assistant professor of medicine and faculty physician at University of Chicago. Dr. Parker, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Uh, thank you for having me.
0: And that's today's Reset. Watch this feed because our series Closing the Gap continues throughout the week. Tomorrow, we're tracking diversity in vaccine trials. Some experts are concerned about representation from different racial groups as the vaccines were developed. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow.